0: Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink programme. I am Marcus Hippip. This week we hear from author Nikki Sengnit, who continues her work helping home chefs to navigate their way through flavours and how to combine them.
1: You know, if you're just looking for an answer if you're just looking for a recipe google can do that this is more about letting your imagination kind of run or come up with something that because only you know what you like
0: then we speak to eddie wong food entrepreneur and comedian whose renowned bao bun shop bao house has recently opened a pop-up eatery in london i think that the key to my success in every
2: industry i've been in right whether it was selling weed or selling bao <laughs> or like doing television and film is that i'm self-taught in everything and i really maintain my voice
0: also I had susan jung one of hong kong's most important voices on food and drink on where to go for some of the best fried chicken all that here on the menu on monocle radio A little over a decade ago, a small revolution took place in the world of cookery books. A manual written at a kitchen table in London appeared. It was called the Flavour Thesaurus. Its author, Nicky Sengnit, spotted that there was no book to help you or I navigate our way through flavours and how to combine them. The book became a worldwide hit. Now Nikki has written a second volume. The Flavour Thesaurus, More Flavors, is out now. Monaco's Emma Nelson paid a visit to Nikki's apartment in North London. They sat down around the same kitchen table and talked about the alchemy of taste. That, mm. feels, that feels good. good. That feels good. That feels good. <laughs>
3: Tomato and basil, chicory and blue cheese, lime and chilli. They feel good. They taste right. They just work. Why is that? In a kitchen in North London, new combinations are being cooked up. Nikki Segnit is standing
1: in front of me, holding a piece of chicory. What does she plan to do with it? I'm going to braise it in orange juice. So what's going to happen to the chicory is going to go from being that bitter, rather kind of, I, I always think of it tasting a little bit like I imagine electricity to taste. It's kind of, it's got a slight bleak flavour when it's raw, which I like. It's great with blue cheese and walnuts, isn't it? Kind of that bitterness tends to be offset by those ingredients, salty, kind of fattiness. But here with orange juice, cooked, it's going to transform. You're going to lose some of the bitterness. It's going to become much sweeter.
3: The flavour combinations we reach for almost automatically may be enough for some. But not for Nikki. Twelve years ago, she saw a cookery program where blueberries and sweet potatoes were served
1: up together, and it got her thinking. I'm going to go and find a book that teaches me how to pair ingredients. And I had loads of food books, and I was really interested in kind of recipe books and in all sorts of kind of food books, and had never seen this book about flavour pairings before. So I don't know if I really thought I was going to find it. I didn't find it. I went online. To see whether I could find, you know, maybe something had been written years ago or maybe something in the States, but there was absolutely nothing. In fact, I couldn't even find any books really about flavor. So I joked to my husband, oh, well, I, you know, ha I'm going to write it myself. And then promptly, you know, had a glass of wine and forgot about it. And then a week later, I would say I was sitting in my office in Great Portland Street on a hot day with the window open and the Flavour Thesaurus title just popped into my head like someone posted it in a post box.
3: The Flavour Thesaurus was the first book to examine pairing food combinations by flavour.
1: It wasn't just, oh, this is nice with this. It was, why? Why are strawberries good with balsamic vinegar? Why is black pepper recommended for some fruits? So I thought, but I would collect these reasons and compile them into the book and, you know, add some other stuff of my own And it turned out that I I didn't find one. I did not find one explanation or even an attempt at an explanation of why one thing worked with another. So in the end, I had to compile it myself. I had to really go back to basics, primary research and find out about flavor, start reading flavor chemistry books, which uh, was a bit of a challenge with my chemistry background being as poor as it is, but, you know, horticulture, agriculture, anthropological yeah, really, like, getting down to the nitty-gritty, and, yeah, it was was much tougher than I was expecting.
3: Nikki offered a harbour for weary cooks, feeling down and adrift and running out of ideas. She took 99 popular ingredients and suggested flavour matchings for each one, ranging from the classic to the bizarre. She called it a chemistry
1: of flavours. If you take a basil leaf and you take a bite of it and you can taste in that basil leaf very strong flavour of clove, and sometimes it's so pronounced that the leaf will numb your mouth in the way that biting a clove will. Well, that's kind of important because it shows you there's a really big crossover of flavour. The, the basil leaf that you think of as being herb and you might think of tasting grassy and maybe you taste a little bit of aniseed in it actually has a really strong spicy note sometimes they taste a bit more like cinnamon and what's interesting about that is it starts to teach us a little bit about the flavor composition of an ingredient and then suggest ways of using it in new ways and maybe explain historical ways that it has been used so i often give this example but when i was looking at basil and I was reading about Italian housewives sometimes adding a pinch of ground clove to their pesto if they don't think that the basil's got enough kind of pep to it. And you see what they're doing. These are, they don't know anything about flavour science, but they can identify the fact that if something's missing, it can be replaced with another ingredient. And that's just that's beautiful, but that's also that's when the science becomes interesting, when it tells us something, it kind of explains something.
3: The book was a worldwide hit, translated into 14 languages. It took up home on the shelves of houses and apartments and of baristas, mixologists and chefs, and her readers begged her for more. Lentil fans or leek aficionados would collar her to complain that she hadn't included their favourite ingredient. So the solution has been a new, a second book the flavour thesaurus, New Flavours. Using plant-based foods as a starting point and bringing us fresh combinations, such as the orange and chicory getting gooey in the pan and knocking us sideways by the flavour. Can you remember an incident when that's happened?
1: Well, I think this is a really good example of this happening, actually. Just thinking, you know, making this for the book, knowing it's a classic... Having my expectations like, yeah, I probably it will be all right and I'll serve it for dinner and then eating it and thinking, oh, that's completely transformed that ingredient. And it's almost like the bitterness that you have in the orange juice and the sourness that you have and then the chicory becoming much sweeter. You have it covers a much broader spectrum of tastes because they are tastes than you're expecting. And then you've got all these lovely flavors that have developed, too.
3: Who would have known that adding caraway to an egg mayonnaise sandwich would cause fireworks? That plum and kale are worthy but good friends? And that green beans and cinnamon create a miracle akin to a new ingredient? How do you use it in the kitchen?
1: well like I say it kind of depends sometimes you've just got something that you want to use up you open your salad crisper to spare all the half packets of things that you've bought or you're looking on your counter at these wonderful things that you bought at the farmer's market because you were just you fell in love with them in a kind of instant so as I say you can just look up the back and you can see what the different flavor pairings are and maybe you know you're quite a confident cook Uh, quite a lot of the readers will be people that kind of Have some kind of skill in the kitchen, go off and do you know decide I'm going to make a soup with them, I'm going to put them in a pasta, I'm going to put them in a bowl together. But if you want to know more, if you're kind of perhaps either looking for a bit more inspiration or you're looking to understand a bit more about what's behind that pairing, then you know you can go to the front and you know it might tell you how different cultures pair that ingredient or those two ingredients, it might tell you something about how they're historically repaired. It might give you a cocktail. Uh, it's just a whole load of different things. It's really, I don't think it's necessarily a book that's, you know, if you're just looking for an answer, if you're just looking for a recipe, Google can do that. This is more about letting your imagination kind of run or come up with something that, because only you know what you like, really.
3: And what was Nikki's most surprising discovery? I think
1: avocado and honey. I used to have a Brazilian friend who would say that she just couldn't understand why we'd only ever eat avocados made into guacamole or into like savoury dishes, and why didn't we, you know, why weren't we eating them like she did in Brazil, which was with sugar sprinkled on them? So eventually, I got around to trying it with a very light honey, with not a, like an orange flower honey. So it's a honey that doesn't have a, a lot of it's, you know, it's quite sweet. It's got little, you know, it's got sort of delicate floral flavours, but it's not, it's not very pungent like a lot of honeys can be. And I, I, I just instantly thought, this is like going back to a house that you used to live in. It feels very familiar and yet kind of completely strange at the same time because, you know, someone else has moved in and they've changed everything. It was just all the flavours of avocado that I knew, you know, the ones we don't normally cover up with garlic, cumin, you know, or like strong flavours. There it was, this grassiness and like slight aniseed flavour but sweetened and, and made very, you know, very beautiful. It suddenly made it so much more the fruit that it is.
3: The Flavour Thesaurus New Flavours may not look like a cookery book or a science manual, but it shows that when it comes to our appetite for something tasty while learning something along the way, we're as hungry as ever. For Monocle Radio, I'm Emma Nelson.
0: Nikki's Englisch there in discussion with Monaco's Emma Nelson, and Nikki's new book, The Flavour Thesaurus More Flavours, is out now. Eddie Wong is a man of many talents. Almost as soon as he started his professional life as a lawyer, he realized he was destined for something more creative. In 2009, he masterfully blended his love for food and his Taiwanese heritage to Open Bao House, a bun shop in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. This was the catalyst for his prolific career as a stand-up comedian, actor, ricer and food entrepreneur, which focuses on telling his family story through food. Until July, Eddie brings Bauhaus to London's neighborhood restaurant in Islington, which looks to give the most exciting local and global chefs limited-time pop-ups. Monaco's Monica Lillis spoke to Eddie in the studio at Midori House and started by asking him why he made the switch into the food industry in the first place. Well, really what it was, I
2: was was doing stand-up comedy And I was selling weed. And, uh, you know, I I really didn't fit in in a law firm. Like, I worked there only for six months and, uh, you know, got laid off during the recession. But uh, my mom came to visit me. And she figured out what was going on in my house because people were running in and out late at night. And she just started crying Mm -hmm. and was like, you wasted my life. And I was like, shit, Uh, I might have... So then I just took all the money I had, which wasn't that much. You know, I was just, I was small time. And I went and opened Bauhaus. That was it. I was just, I didn't want to embarrass my mom anymore.
4: <laughs> and tell me about Bauhaus. Like what inspired you to open it? Because, you know, I feel like this cuisine, like Taiwanese cuisine and Bao bun's super popular now. But like, yeah. were, were they popular then? Like as much as they are? Yeah, right?
2: it, it was really two very simple things going on that, you know, uh, propelled the the creation of Bauhaus. One was that I saw Asians were getting famous, like in food. Like David Chang was so famous because of the pork bun, but he was doing it like with French technique. And I had quite a bit of pride because this dish is from Taiwan, and I was like, Yo, people got to know it's from Taiwan, and they should try the original flavor to see what it's like. And then also along with my mom being just like so disappointed with me in life, I was like, well, I do know how to cook. I know how to run a cash business. These buns are quite popular and no one's had the original. It just made total sense. And the decision took maybe nine days, like from the day my mom was crying on my steps to getting the lease for Bauhaus. It was about nine days. I just moved fast.
4: Wow, that's really amazing. Yeah. And why do you think... The business has become so successful particularly in the us
2: i i think that the key to my success in every industry i've been in right whether it was selling weed or selling bao <laughs> or like doing television and film is that i'm self-taught in everything and i really maintain my voice and i use my own logic and reasoning so when i opened the restaurant i really thought about it like a skate shop or a video store or a record shop instead of like a traditional restaurant. There was no photos of people cooking food. It was me, my family, like cultural artifacts that meant a lot to me. Mm. I played like Dipset and G-Unit mixtapes and people had not been playing that type of music in a restaurant format before. And I think because I came at it with a different angle and then also the food was on Smash, like, you know, no one makes a bao bun like me. So <laughs> it was really that the food was phenomenal, but it was a different vibe and a different angle. And I think that with everything I do, I just try to come at it from a different perspective.
4: So you're launching in Brighton as well, but you're also launching at Neighbourhood in London, I believe, mm-hmm. as we're recording it's today. Mm-hmm. So why was London the next step?
2: You know, what I never thought it would be London. It just so happened that this guy, Jimmy, he's like Jimmy Cherry on Instagram. He DM me and he just made me a proposal. And, you know, I went back at him with a pretty big number in my mind. And I was just like, if you could if you could hit this number, then we can talk. And they didn't hit the number, but they got close enough. And my wife is pregnant with our first child. So I was like, no better time than now to come to London and do this. And in retrospect, when I think about it, it's just fortuitous. It's very serendipitous. I'm very lucky because personally i'm interested in what's going on culturally in london Mm. whether it's with your music whether it's with fashion whether it's like you know even like some of the documentary films that are produced by people in london like it's quite cool I, i just was reading a lot of articles about like art and culture coming out of london so everything dovetailed it's been pretty cool
4: so what are your favorite flavor combinations for your bowels
2: you know, I'll I'll be very honest with you. I don't really eat the bows that much. <laughs> I eat the rice. I okay. really like the Taiwanese turkey rice, the minced pork stew, and then I love the crispy Chinese chicken salad. I eat the wings a lot. I'm like kinda gluten intolerant, so I even make my Chinese food with tamari now. So my body has affected what I eat, but like I eat the rice the most.
4: Yeah, but what do you, do you think there's like a most popular flavor combo or one of the most classic?
2: Yeah, the most classic is the chairman bao, the pork, for sure. It It's always a split crowd. We're always 50-50. Some people like the fried chicken or they like the pork, but it's one of those two.
4: Yeah, it sounds delicious. And so you're talking about a little bit there about different um, products that you have in terms of like the wings, the rice... How much product development is there in the kitchen when it comes to Bauhaus and different kind of products that you're offering to consumers?
2: There's quite a lot. Um, Because I'm the only chef at the place, (laughs) I don't really have partners and stuff. Everything just comes from what I'm eating and what I'm cooking at home with my wife. And if we like a dish and we're eating it a couple times a month... I start to think about it and then I'll start to write out the recipe and then it goes in this Google Doc that I've had for like 15 years with every recipe. And when there is an opportunity at a pop-up, I just like Apple F, search for the dish and then bring it out.
4: That must be a very exciting Google Doc. I'd love yeah, to see yeah,
2: it one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty funny because <laughs> there's also dishes that like I came up with while traveling on the road for Wong's World, learning new techniques. Like that was always the most exciting part of my cooking career was traveling and seeing new techniques and then implementing it with Taiwanese Chinese flavor.
4: Do you feel like opening Bauhaus has really honored your heritage in that way?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the thing I think I'm most excited and proud of representing Taiwanese, Chinese, East Asian American culture is that I broke it out of the mold of like the 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 really uh model minority and kind of like the Chinese restaurant you would expect an immigrant to open that's a very like teacher's petish, right I think that I I really kicked down the door in terms of
0: representing people in the margins and people who just like are idiosyncratic Eddie Wong there speaking to Monaco's Monica Lillis. you are with Monaco Radio You are listening to The Menu. Up next, it's time for the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monaco's Hilmi Pillai.
5: Netflix announced this week that it will open a pop-up restaurant at the Short Stories Hotel in Los Angeles. The restaurant, called Netflix Bites, will open on the 30th of June and serve dishes from chefs featured on the streaming site's many food programs. The menu is yet to be revealed, but the chefs participating include Dominique Crenn, Nadia Hussein, and Rodney Scott. The restaurant will also serve cocktails designed by mixologists from the show Drink Masters. Italian consumer advocate group Assutenti is calling for a week-long national pasta strike starting on June 22nd. The aim of the protest is to draw attention to the rising cost of pasta, which has increased at twice the rate of inflation. Italians hope that by not buying pasta for a week, retailers will be forced to lower prices. Grocery prices have been rising across Europe, but Asutenti argues that the current price of pasta does not align with the actual production costs. Salt Bay Burger, once described as New York City's worst restaurant, has closed down just three years after its opening. The Manhattan Burger joint, created by the celebrity chef and butcher, Nusred Gokshi, more widely known as Salt Bay, faced controversy from the beginning by offering free pink ladies' burgers exclusively to female customers. The restaurant also drew attention for its salty prices, including a $99 gold-flecked milkshake and a hundred dollar gold burger. Those were the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus.
0: Thanks, Helmi. You are with Monical Radio. Susan Jung worked for the South China Morning Post as a food and wine editor for almost 25 years. In that time, she noticed the recipes that caught most attention amongst readers and prompted most feedback were the ones for fried chicken. The clear demand from readers made Susan learn more about fried chicken in East and Southeast Asia, and she discovered such a rich world of recipes that she decided to write a book about the topic. Kung Pao and Beyond was released back in April, and as Susan was visiting London, I caught up with her to talk about fried chicken and her favourite recipes. First, she explained why it is fried chicken that got so much attention amongst her readers at the South China Morning Post.
6: I think fried chicken is universal and universally loved. There's just something about the crunch and chicken. Chicken is easily accessible, people can find it, um, and it's fairly inexpensive. So I think people just like fried chicken.
0: How was the idea for this book born then? Kung Ba Pao and Beyond. What was your thinking?
6: Well, actually, it was one of my colleagues who who noticed how well the recipes do online. And he said, oh, he said, jokingly, you should write a book on fried chicken. And I thought, oh, my God, what a great idea. And so I did.
0: And how was it to create a book like that? It's always often the same question I have for many people who have been writing cookbooks. How many recipes did you have? collected to start with and how many did you have to lose and how difficult was it to choose what to include and what to leave out?
6: Well I made fried chicken every day at least once a day for three months and I started off with about 90 ideas and then I very quickly narrowed it down to 60 which the 60 that appear in the book. Um, There was some repetition with you know flavors and so I, I just got rid of some of the ones that didn't work as well.
0: So we're focusing on East and Southeast Asia in this book and recipes from that region. How did you collect all those recipes over the years?
6: Well, some of the recipes are original, like the um, uh, chicken poppers with instant noodle coating. That's something I made up, but most of the time it's because I eat a lot. At whenever I travel, I seek out local food, and to me that's very exciting because you can go anywhere and eat at a French restaurant. And I'm not saying I don't like French food, but when I'm going to Singapore, I you know I want to eat at the hawker centres. When I go to Thailand, I want to eat on the streets. When I go to Japan, I mean I go to the, the convenience stores and eat fried chicken and, you know, some of the other really interesting and delicious offerings that they have at at the convenience stores. So I, I, it was actually very easy to come up with the ideas.
0: There's something about food, it often brings back memories and people often have anecdotes about when they've been eating something. I wonder if you have fried chicken stories, have there been, you know, you've gone somewhere and had an amazing portion of fried chicken, do you have those stories, like some most memorable experiences?
6: Well, the chicken that brings back the most memories is the one that I make myself at home. And it's my mom's fried chickens. And it's the first recipe that I that I wrote for the book. It's the first recipe I learned when I was when I moved out of the house to go to university. And when I taste it, it just brings back memories of my mother cooking for us. And it was the favorite dish of me and my brothers. We just loved it. And when On the rare occasion, she asked, what do you want to eat for dinner tonight? We'd say mom's fried chicken. And um, I don't know where she got the recipe. She doesn't remember where she got the recipe. But it's just something really delicious to me.
0: Can you tell me more about that recipe so our listeners get an idea of what you have over there in the book? And maybe maybe talk about some other favorite recipes of yours as well.
6: Well, there's a lot of favorites. But mom's fried chicken is unusual in that most of the recipes in the book are, are, are double fried. So you fry it at one temperature, at a lower temperature to cook the meat through, and then you, you let it rest for a while, and then you fry it at a higher temperature um, to crisp up the coating. Mom's fried chicken is um, unusual in that it's um, not marinated at all. It's not seasoned at all. You just fry the chicken, and then you season it afterwards. So, and and it's fried only once. So after the chicken is fried, you dip it in a, a mixture of soy sauce, rice wine, ginger, garlic, and then you bake it. So instead of uh, double frying it again to crisp up the exterior, you bake it and it it, it gets a little bit crunchy and, and delicious. And she always served it over iceberg lettuce, which is not very fashionable, but that's how I like it. And that that because she made it that way, that's how I like it.
0: It sounds amazing. I wonder what, what other favorite recipes do you have in the book?
6: There's so many. Um, I love the Typhoon Shelter wings just because it's very Hong Kong. Um, I love the shrimp paste wings. Um, although some people might find that a little bit challenging because shrimp paste is quite pungent. But it's a lot stronger smelling than than it tastes. So um, I urge people to try it, even though it might be unusual to them.
0: How much innovation is there taking place at the moment when it comes to fried chicken? Do you come across something new every now and then?
6: I do, and... There's so many recipes that I ate afterwards that I really wish I could have included in the book, like um, my friend uh, Anthony just opened a, a izakaya called Uza, and he made the most delicious chicken karaage. So chicken karaage is a Japanese. Um, way of making fried chicken and you can find it at any izakaya but he serves it with a dipping sauce of chicken livers with mala so uh, Sichuan peppercorns and chili and it's really delicious it's an unusual um, interpretation and then in Korea which is everybody knows about Korean fried chicken Um, you know it even has a shortcut KFC people call it KFC but they get it mixed up with the other KFC Mm -hmm. but um, there's a a restaurant or restaurant chain in um, South Korea called Hyodo Fried Chicken. And it's opened by a Michelin two-star chef, Minggu Kang of um, Mingu Restaurant in Seoul. And everybody thinks of, of KFC as just a spicy version, but he does fried chicken with shishito peppers and um, fried chicken with lotus root and fried chicken, what he calls tomahawk fried chicken. So he he removes it from the bone slightly so it looks kind of like a tomahawk steak and so I think there's it's open to so much variation so much interpretation so much innovation that I, I think it's endless.
0: You mentioned a couple of restaurants over there for fried chicken I'm wondering if you were to continue with some kind of uh, a recommendations list a few spots for great fried chicken around Asia what would those places be?
6: Well there is a a place in Tokyo called Den. And I don't know if you know this, but in, in Japan, eating KFC, the original KFC, not Korean fried chicken, but Kentucky fried chicken, is very fashionable at, at Christmas. So people celebrate with a bucket of fried chicken. And I think it might be because KFC, I think, might have been the first, one of the first. Um, American fast food chains to open in Japan. And so Japanese people think of it as a celebratory thing. It's something that it's not home cooked food, so it's a little bit more expensive. So they eat it at home to celebrate Christmas. And so my friend Zayu Hasagawa opened a restaurant called Den. And his version of KFC, which he calls Kentucky fried chicken, um, is a very high-end chicken wing. So he removes the bones and stuffs it with seasonal ingredients. So it might be bamboo shoots or it might be matsutake mushrooms. And it's his way of reminiscing about KFC, which he ate as a child. And then another fried chicken that I just love is Famichiki, which you get at Family Mart. So there, there's three major convenience sh- store chains in Japan, uh, Lawson's, uh, Family Mart, and 7-Eleven, and they all make fried chicken, and they each have their, their fans. So I like Lawson's Famichiki, and it's just so inexpensive, but so delicious.
0: When you talk about those great places for fried chicken, is there some kind of a universal recipe how to come up with amazing fried chicken? What are the tricks? What does it take?
6: Well, I don't think there is just one recipe for, for the perfect fried chicken because there's different ways of having there's, – there's different crunches that you can have Um Sometimes you want a hard crunch. Sometimes you want a softer crunch. So that all depends on the coating that you use, whether it's a dry coating or a batter. And um, it depends on what you want. And everybody likes things their own way. So you can change the recipes according to if you want a harder crunch on some of the recipes. I, I gave recipes where I think it's appropriate. But if you want to change it, I, I hope that people do, do adapt the recipes to their own tastes.
0: And indeed, this book, Kung Pao and Beyond, is is out now. Susan, before I let you go, obviously I'd like to talk about what else is happening in Hong Kong. For example, you've been following the food scene over there for, for many, many years, considering mm. that you worked as the food and wine editor of South China Morning Post for almost 25 years. How have you seen Hong Kong change in terms of its cuisine?
6: There is so much happening now and so much opened during the pandemic. It was shocking, um, I think, because... They had the ball rolling on certain restaurants or restaurant concepts. And so they had to keep going because they were already paying for the space. They were already, you know, they might have hired staff. They already had the concepts. So they opened during the pandemic. And because Hong Kong people couldn't go anywhere, we ate at those restaurants. So restaurants were booming. They were doing so well during the pandemic because we couldn't travel anywhere. A lot of Japanese restaurants opened because Japan is a popular destination with Hong Kong people. So... There's, they, you know, there's so many new Japanese restaurants, and there's just really great restaurants. I mean, there's always been great restaurants in Hong Kong, but, but the pandemic helped um, a lot more open.
0: Susan Chung there, she's the author of Kung Pao and Beyond, Fried Chicken Recipes from East and Southeast Asia. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at twenty hundred London time. That's at midday if you are listening in San Francisco. Also, remember our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods, where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. The programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Craig David with What's Your Flavour? Thanks for listening and until next week.
2: Telling you what I'm in the middle of July with the drop top down in the park when the summer These ice creams looking so fine that I just can't lie.